Hello and welcome to Music Talks, discussions on music education. I'm David Ramos, providing future music educators with advice and insight gathered from conversations with music professionals. Each episode, we discuss relevant topics and issues present in music classrooms across the nation. So if you've been listening to this podcast, first off, thanks for following the show. Second, you would know that last episode, we focused on the music of living black composers and spoke with Dr. Marcus Garrett from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I was just like, whoa, this is what I wrote. Dr. Chandler Wilson from Florida State University. I grew up in a very musically talented family. And Nicole Yarling from Florida Memorial University. Thanks for thinking about me. No problem. I asked them to talk about their stories how they got involved in music. I tell everybody that I came out of the womb singing instead of crying. When they first started composing. I started arranging stuff for a marching band. And what the process was behind their compositions. I have the most bizarre process for writing. What you may not know is I asked a few other questions as well. Questions like, what advice do you have for young composers, arrangers, who are looking to publish stuff that they've written. In this divisive time, what are some of the conversations that you think should be happening? What advice do you have for aspiring educators who they want to start a community group? Now for this podcast, we usually focus on a singular topic and discuss it. The thing is, I realized I had so much archived audio from episode five that I had to feature it somehow. So for this episode, the conversation continues. Again, we're featuring guest speakers Dr. Marcus Garrett, Dr. Chandler Wilson, and Nicole Yartling. And listen to what they have to say on topics, such as starting your own community ensemble. You have to be passionate about it. Getting published. The scariest part is to actually just put your music out there. And, of course, celebrating black music. Our contributions as brown people everywhere in the world. It's amazing. On behalf of Florida NAFME Collegiate, I'm David Ramos. This is Music Talks. Stay with us. So, because there is no one topic for this episode, we decided to separate the collected conversations into five distinct topics, or parts, starting with part one, history of black music. I've been posting stuff on my Facebook page, some of it jazz, but most of it's not. And the reason I've been doing it is because I've been teaching history for years. And so I'm a bit of a history geek. This, of course, is Nicole Yarling, professor at Florida Memorial University, who discusses the importance of understanding the history behind the music of black people. I love connecting dots. And the more research I do, the more I learn and the more I realize I don't know. <laughs> so especially teaching at a historically black university, you realize that these students know nothing about their history. Absolutely nothing. I've been all over the world, and everyone else in the world knows more about, especially African Americans, than African Americans. They know more about our music and who we are than we know about ourselves. So my whole job is to enlighten people, Black people, white people, everybody, you know, about what I've learned. Mm -hmm about music period, you know, and, and especially about our contributions as African-Americans in this country, but our contributions as brown people everywhere in the world. It's amazing the things that you, I mean, do, did you know that Bahia, do you know about Bahia? No, I don't. Okay, Bahia in, in Brazil has the largest population of Africans outside of Africa. Huh. And that's where samba developed. It, I, had, I had a student from Angola. Angola was settled by the Portuguese. They do something called sembe. I think my pronunciation is right. Very similar to samba. I, I'm learning all this stuff, and it's amazing how in the favelas, the slums, the black slums in Brazil, they had these things called samba schools. And they developed the dance, and all of the elements of Africa are included in this music. And then it became popular. Now it's celebrated everywhere in the world, but it's also celebrated everywhere in Brazil, a big carnival, you know. But it started in the Bahia, in the African part of Brazil. Right now you're listening to Brazilian artist Raimundo Sadre singing Sacando a Cana, Bagging the Sugar Cane. 
it's those kind of things that people don't know. Right. Here's another here's another little tidbit, and this is not jazz, but I posted something on my Facebook page about a gentleman by the name of Otis Blackwell. He was a singer-songwriter who wrote songs for Elvis Presley. And the reason I found out about him was watching David Letterman about 20 years ago, <laughs> and he was on the show. And, you know, you're listening to him, and he wrote, he wrote uh, Don't Be Cruel. He wrote Great Balls of Fire. He wrote all these songs, right? So he gets up to sing, and you go, oh, my God, that's Elvis. This is that very same recording from 1984. Otis Blackwell singing his own song, Don't Be Cruel. So Elvis listened to his demos and copied his demos. I mean, there's a whole history of this stuff where we created music as brown people, and it was popular because you know that there were these this big separation or segregation in the music industry. There were race records, anything black, <laughs> and the general records. A handful of jazz musicians recorded on the larger labels. So there were a lot of these songs that came out that everybody bought and everybody enjoyed, but there were people that said, no, we don't want to listen to that music. So you had several white artists that would re-record the same songs of Little Richard, who just passed away. A bunch of the songs that he recorded, white artists would re-record these songs. So it was palatable for white audiences. Same songs, very similar. So there's all of these, I mean, there's so much, I can go on for hours about this, but I'm trying, that's what I want people to understand. There's nothing wrong with people embracing music, but it's important that people understand and have perspective because I think a lot of the time people say things and do things, they listen with their eyes, not necessarily their ears, <laughs> and they make decisions about what music sounds like and what music should look like without doing any research. And like I've said, I'm not speaking from, this is not my opinion. This is from years and years and years of digging and and teaching. And I find these things out all the time. So I'm like anxious to share all of this information with people, you know, so. And it's so interesting. I was talking with our last guest about the stories behind these songs, just like you were saying. And it's stories that we just don't know about. What do you think listeners can take away from the narratives of the folk songs that you use as inspiration, that you've researched, and how can they apply it to their own narratives, especially in this time? I think the the greatest narrative is not in the text. It's in the story behind the music, behind this folk music. This is me with one of our other guests, Dr. Marcus Garrett, talking about Black folk music and spirituals. Um, So we think about spirituals. And... But living in Nebraska, it's not the most diverse state. So when I go visit high schools, I get to see a lot of one group. And that group did not experience slavery, or they did not, their ancestors did not experience slavery the way the mind did. So it is important for people to know how this music was created. While we hear a lot of the up-tempo spirituals being performed at the end of a concert, um, as an encore, whatever the case may be. And those are the pieces that the choirs just love to sing and they have so much fun with them and the audience gets so happy. It's important to remember that while you get happy hearing that music, this music did not come from a happy experience in any way. Were there a couple folks who had a decent experience? Yeah, but we know that the vast majority did not have a good experience through that. This is the reason why we had to have a whole war about it. And so it's important for people to know that in the midst of one of, if not the worst tragedy in American history, um, in the midst of all of that, we still got this music that was beautiful. Not even hurt, despair, physical harm, abuse, and even death could keep this music from, from happening. And again, it is those circumstances um, that created this genre of music. So understanding that, I mean, we we can make our own transfers to our personal lives. No, I've never been a human slave, but had there been times when when I felt down, where I felt like I couldn't accomplish something or my heart got broken, 
Absolutely. I wrote a whole song cycle after my heart got broken. <laughs> I, I can look back on what these hundreds of thousands of people created and say, if they were able to endure all of that and still create this good music and still able to literally endure to continue on, then I can get through my first world problems and I can, I can make, things, uh, make things better for me and for, for other people. So for me, the biggest transfer is no matter how bad the situation gets, there is still always something good that can come out of it. Sometimes I feel just like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel just like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel just like a motherless child. When we left Africa, when we were placed in different places, we adapted and adopted. You have to think, you take everything else away from people. You take away all their possessions. They still have a brain. People that left Africa were craftsmen. You couldn't go to Guitar Center and buy <laughs> instruments. Think about that. So there was a tradition of make, instrument making. And a lot of our music period was passed down orally. So you have to think about, you take everything else away from people, but you, these are things you can't take away. Yeah. So it's easy to kind of figure out ways to adapt and adopt. So a lot of the music, you know, like fiddle stuff and everything, there were people, there were black fiddle players, and there's a tradition, and if you're interested, there's a group called the Carolina Chocolate Drops. If you don't know them, mm -hmm. check them out. They're young, they're African-American, and they're playing what people would consider old-timey fiddle, but like traditional music. But this was music also played by African-Americans. Right. But people don't, you see what I'm saying? There's yeah, all yeah. these things that people don't, they, they don't bother to look. So for me, it's important. I think in our country, right now especially, there's a lot of ignorant people. And I don't say that to be uh, mean or understand. Ignorance to me is when someone really doesn't know. So our job as educators, yours as well, is to give people this information. Now, if they choose not to, <laughs> to agree, and it's factual, if they choose not to accept it, then that's stupidity. That's a different story, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if you don't know, I can't blame you for not knowing. And I think a lot of America doesn't know. And that's the difference. You understand? And, and, and I'm not mad. That's why I could never be mad at what's going on now. Because I think a lot of people are now starting to understand things about the Civil War. Things that were systemic, and even with laws, it's hard to change people's thinking because the law said that we weren't equal. We were never stupid. We were never less than human. We've always been intelligent, resourceful people. But when it's kind of ingrained into your cultural DNA that you're less than, then you even start to believe it. So it's having, it's just kind of pulling everybody's coat. Young African-Americans that are not aware, uh, young white Americans, young everybody and the older generation. Some people will, will never change, you know that. That's not gonna happen. But if we have the opportunity as educators to change, or at least plant a seed in people's minds, then I think you and I are on the same track. <laughs> even listening to Nicole Yarling singing her arrangement of the Negro spiritual, Motherless Child. This brings us to the next part of our episode, part two, Conversations.
So I mentioned in episode 5 how the premise behind the topic, Black Music Matters, was kind of my response to what was and still is going on in this country. We're at 38th in Chicago, right where George Floyd lost his life. Violent protests raged for a second straight night following the death of George Floyd after being arrested by a Minneapolis police officer. The tenth night of protests across the U.S. over the death of George Floyd and generations of injustice. The pain that's been experienced by the families of George and Brianna and Ahmad and Tony and Sean and too many others to mention, uh, those that we thought about during that, that moment of silence. I am so angry, I, and I can't even begin. Forgive me. Just a few months ago, I was racking my brain thinking, as a future educator, what is my role? What should I be doing in this moment of crisis? It was around this time that I came across a video by a man named Emmanuel Acho. Uh, welcome to the first of hopefully many episodes of Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Man. In the midst of all this chaos in our world, so many of y'all have reached out to me, and by y'all, I mean- Some of you may have heard of him. He has several of these videos out now, and the premise for them is fairly simple. Having uncomfortable conversations for the purpose of societal change. Now, as y'all may very well realize, conversation is important. It's the basis behind this whole podcast. We even discussed in episode one how advocating itself is simply having a conversation. I came to the conclusion that this is where I and so many of us should start, having a conversation. The question was, what conversations should be had? During my interview with Chandler Wilson, professor at Florida State University, I brought up his composition inspired by this very topic. It's titled, Conversations. Let's talk a little bit about one of your other compositions, Conversations. Uh, mm -hmm. And I really like the inspiration behind it, having necessary conversations for societal change and for us as a society to move forward. In this divisive time, we're just sitting at home and bubbling over thoughts of racial oppression and police brutality. What are some of the conversations that you think should be happening? either in our own homes or on social media or together in this moment in time? Ooh, that's a deep question. You know, kind of like some things you just mentioned, there's just a large scale of things that I think we can all speak on. And it's more so like we would say is bringing stuff to the table, you know, and the biggest part of conversation is really also the listening. I mean, listening to other people's opinions and listening to see how people feel about certain things, whether it is, you know, race or it can be gender issues, it can be police brutality, it can be systemic racism. And sometimes there's things where if you don't experience it, you just don't know. about a week or two ago and I referenced this video that's it's on Facebook or social media somewhere of a, a guy who lines up about 20 30 students and they're gonna race for a hundred dollars and he says you know if you didn't if you never had to worry about paying for your cell phone bill take two steps forward and how you know certain privileges are unconscious you just don't know sometimes we just have to be socially conscious will we ever be a hundred percent no but that doesn't mean you can't listen when there is something that's, you know, there or to even speak up when you feel like something is, you know, not right. Because we speak about the same thing with public school and with bullying and, and cyberbullying. If you see something that's not right, then, you know, it's also your job to speak up. So I think it's just it's a large scale thing talking, but also we all have to listen and actively listen to. are the conversations we as collegiates and future teachers can and should be having. And they can be had with literally anyone, your friends, your family, even your NAFME collegiate chapter. Just over a month ago, the Florida State University chapter hosted a virtual meeting 
with Dr. Jeffrey Redding, Director of Coral Activities at the University of Central Florida, on starting a long-term strategy to end racism in the classroom. If your NAFME Collegiate Chapter has been having similar conversations, great, keep having them, and encourage others to do the same, because that is the first step in learning and growing together. This is how we start to change our classrooms, our society, for the better, one conversation at a time. Part 3, Community Ensembles. So in our last episode, speaking with Nicole Yarling, I asked her about how she got involved with music. She talked about listening to the jazz records in her house, being inspired by her father, the organ-slash-piano player, and attending her first jam session. What didn't make its way into episode 5 were a few other stories from her days living in New York, like this one. Living in New York and growing up, you had opportunities. Um, there was a place called The Muse in Brooklyn, Okay. Reggie Workman was the director. Jazzmobile, which went on for, it's still in existence. It's almost 60 years old. Oh, wow. I looked them up. The organization was founded in 1964. So, yeah, almost 60 years. A lot of the guys from the Basie Band taught there. Frank Foster, Steve Ture. I mean, it goes, the list goes on. There's all these amazing musicians taught there every Saturday. For a year, it was $15. Mm. It's so... But having Billy Taylor, I think, might have been the director of Jazzmobile. Barry Harris, who's well into his 90s, still does a workshop in New York. And everybody that's ever been to New York knows about this workshop. And most people go, yeah. you know. And you, it doesn't matter what instrument you play. You could be a vocalist. You could be a drummer. You walk in, and it's a big room full of people. And he teaches everybody the same way. So there, and then there were tons of one-off people that were always inspiring and always encouraging. Right. You know, so I owe all of these people a good part of what I do is a result of that. While the COVID pandemic has more than likely postponed the in-person Saturday workshop, that program is still part of Jazzmobile and has been since 1969. As Nicole was telling me all of this, I quickly made a connection to a group that she leads herself down in Miami. I just can't help but think about the JACC group. Like that's that's the same thing. And for listeners at home, that's the Jazz Educators Community Coalition. Yes, yeah. we got that right? Yes, nice. Jazz Education, because it was education. education. And someone said, eh, it's called it education. So we changed the name, Jazz Education Community Coalition. To be honest, a little embarrassed that I messed up the name there, mainly because I was part of the group back in the day. More on that later. Right. It's exactly that. That's why, I mean, there's other organizations in town that have workshops and they charge a lot more money. And I'm like, no, I, by the way, make zero dollars doing this. Yeah. As long as I can pay clinicians, who I know this is how they make their living, as long as I can pay them, the, the five dollars that I ask of everybody goes towards paying the clinicians. The students get paid. But it's not about money. It's about exactly what I'm talking about. If Barry Harris, I would go to Barry Harris's workshop, and there would be days I wouldn't have money. He would never turn anybody away. He would never turn anybody away. All of the people that were giving in kind and for the same reason wanted to impart what they knew to the students, that's why. They, they, I'll tell you why it came into existence. You know, I've been doing the Jazz Encounters for, well, Going into our 11th year, we were. And the mindset behind that, I went to Maggie Palea. Thank you, Maggie. Maggie is the general manager of WDNA 88.9 FM Public Radio. That's actually where we rehearsed, was at the radio station. I went to Maggie and said, I have an idea. And she said, let's run with it. And the idea was to have an older generation of musicians come in and do a set of music and then have a jam session where the, that group of musicians would mentor younger players. So Ira Sullivan was working one night, you know, and Ira's one of the greatest ever. He's playing, I'm looking at the audience, a bunch of kids, they're all excited. So 
they got up to play on their set and they stood around and went, what do you know? What do you know? What do you know? What do you... <laughs> so they spent like 10 minutes trying to figure out what they know. So I said to them that day, I said, hey, if I do a workshop on Saturday, will you come? And they all said, yeah, right? Now most of them, all of them are gone. But the idea was to learn, not necessarily theory, you get that in school. The technical part of your instrument, you'll get from a private teacher, you learn that, right? But it was nuance. You know, all the things that you don't get in school, you can't. A band director has 30, 50 students, you know? Mm -hmm. Armature has to be right. They have to play somewhat in tune. <laughs> I'm joking. But he has a performance, you know, he's responsible for a performance so the parents can say, oh, isn't that nice? That's my kid, right? So he can't work on nuance. They don't have time. So my whole mindset was to make people musically mature. You can stand up, you can take a solo. Does it have to be the greatest solo ever? No. You can count off a song. You're listening to what the piano player, what the guitar player is doing, what the drummer is doing, and you're reacting in real time. You can come up with an arrangement off the top of your head. These are things that, you know, even at a collegiate level, sometimes you don't get these things because you go in, there's a repertoire, you learn the repertoire, and then you perform. You know, and you only perform in, at, at a collegiate level, you may only perform twice or three times a semester, you know, as a, a group. Yeah. My whole thing is, I want you to have as many opportunities to perform as possible and perform for, not for your peers, because that's, that's one thing, you know, your peers are going to go, yeah, man, you did a great job, even mm -hmm. if they don't mean it. Go out in the real world and play, because then you get a true reaction and get paid for it. Because I honestly believe that I don't care how old you are, you're putting in the time on your instrument, you're learning your craft, and your craft is an asset. And it's your asset. So you should be making a living. Because people come to me all the time. It's like, oh, can we? No. I, there are <laughs> things you do for free because you do them for a reason. But for the most part, this is a job. You don't go to a doctor and say, hey, I need surgery. Can you cut me? You know, some, it doesn't work. This is a profession and you should learn early on that your talent is an asset. Thinking back as a performer, that was such an interesting group because you had kids from eight to 18 mm -hmm. and there were times when you just had to wrangle them together. <laughs> and we definitely played the game of like, oh, what, what do you know? What, what do you know? And there's just a lot of interplay of trying to figure out the dynamic of how to teach the one kid who's just fidgeting all the time, like, I got to play. And the other kid who's like, I want to get my arrangement out and play what I've been preparing for the past week. And I really appreciate what you mentioned. It's all about nuance. And you don't get that in no. the formal education setting, which you understand as an educator. Right. I mean, I even, like, I taught at U UM for six years. Mm -hmm. And I had ensembles. And I had private students. I realized that a lot of the, the, the vocalists the only time they would have to perform is for jury and they would do a forum at some point. They'd, they'd have to go in. And now instrumentalists, a lot of the time you're in big band, you're performing in groups, you know, and so you're playing a lot in, in the courts. You're playing an orchestra, maybe concert band, marching band, whatever, but you get to play your instrument a lot. If you think about it, a vocalist doesn't. And they may be in a vocal ensemble, but they're in an ensemble singing with a lot of other voices and they're singing a part. Then you ask them, say, okay, sing, go. You know, you push them out. And unless they're seasoned, like some people come in to schools and, and they've been singing all their lives and they're comfortable. I don't find that as a rule. I find most people are nervous. They're in their head. They're thinking about, oh, am I singing? Is my placement right? Is I, yeah. And they're thinking about all these things. How can you sing a song if that's all you're thinking about? So my point, even at University of Miami, was to find places where my ensembles, especially the singers, would have a chance to get out and sing maybe once a week. Mm -hmm. You know? And so to yeah. me, it's necessary. It's so necessary playing music. What advice do you have for aspiring educators who they go out and they have their full-time job, but they want to start a community group for that exact reason? What advice do you have for them? 
Okay, you, first of all, you have to be passionate about it. It has to be something that you really want to do because there's times you go, like my numbers dwindle, <laughs> you know, and everybody else has shiny new things and big groups and lots of money and I don't. And then you have to keep reminding yourself of why you're doing it. You have to keep the passion because the second you don't have the passion, it's a job. And if it's a job that doesn't pay, why am I doing a job that doesn't pay? It pays me in, 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 I can't tell you what ways. Just seeing these people, you know, blossom and grow and go off to school and do all these amazing things. You know, it's a lot of work and you've got to be tenacious. You have to dig your heels in. And if you go to the workshop one week and there's one person, you treat that workshop like there's a hundred people in the room. You work with that person. You have to know that as long as you're helping one person, you know, it's worth it. You have to learn a little bit about grant writing because <laughs> yeah. that'll, that'll give you opportunity. Uh, Day County has been very good to me. Broward has too, because now I have, I can do things. I'm doing something at Pinecrest. We did this thing, which started off just as the JECC and then the JECC and mentors. And now I built this little like mini festival where I bring in, several community-based groups that are all doing the same thing that I am. And I introduce them to audiences that don't know them. You know what I mean? So it's somebody will come in and say, this is our mission and this is what we do. And they get to perform and they get paid for it. So the, the most, I think the most important thing is you have to persevere. You have to have tenacity and you've got to have passion. I have a funny story. This was just so beautiful and it touched me in crazy ways. Martin Bejarano, the jazz pianist, he said something the other day. I have uh, all of these people to thank. And it was like Roy Haynes and Lonnie Plastico and all these amazing musicians. And I was one of them. I went, <laughs> I'm right next to Roy Haynes in this picture, right? And he said, and he had told me one, one other time, and I didn't know, that I gave him his first jazz gig as a professional. And we did the Kennedy Center together. And I had no idea that it was his first, you know, so I'm like, oh, okay. Because he played so well, you know. But that kind of stuff is worth like a million dollars to me. You know, just hearing somebody say, thank you for what you did. Those are the things that keep you motivated. I guess the last thing I want to mention is just my experience with JCC. I remember, like I mentioned, that was such an interesting group. That was uh, my first exposure to actually improvising, actually being in a group of kids who just really love the music and are just there because they're intrinsically motivated to practice this art and be a part of playing jazz. And I remember um, writing Drifting and thinking, oh, this, this may be something, this may not be something, bring the chart. And Talcon was there at one of the sessions and he helped me finish the back half. And then I had the chart and you said, oh, we should perform it. That was just like my first exposure to writing, to performing my own stuff and to recording too, when we did Journey. It was just like an all around, very educational musical experience for me. So what you had your mentors do with you, you did for me. So I'd, I'd just like to thank you for that. Um, well, thank so. you, I'm getting fuzzy and warmy. Yeah. <laughs> no. When it came time to edit this section of the episode, I went on Facebook and looked through some photos of the group when I was part of it. I listened through the album we made in 2015, Journey. I even pulled out my old JCC t-shirt, still fits. And I remembered the Saturday rehearsals, the paid gigs, and the joy I felt while just playing music. These are the benefits of any community group, whether it's a jazz band, an orchestra, or a choir. Students can have similar experiences in various settings. All it takes is one music teacher with a passion to get it started. Also, in case you were wondering, the tune that I was talking about, Drifting, this is a recording of it with me on saxophone. If you're listening, Nicole, I'm still finding time to write. Thanks again.
Part 4. Getting Published. So, here's the thing about music educators. They wear a lot of hats, metaphorically speaking. They're teachers, sure, but they're also mentors, event planners, instrument repairers. These days when I'm teaching virtually, I feel more like an IT guy than anything else. Needless to say, music teachers do a lot. On top of that, they may also dabble in arranging and composing, sometimes out of necessity, such as composing warm-ups for ensembles or arranging a piece for a not-so-complete concert band. Other times, they may arrange or compose simply because they enjoy it. For these individuals, writing music is something they want to do and get recognized for. They're interested in getting published. While speaking with one of our guests, Dr. Chandler Wilson, I asked him what his advice was for young teachers looking to publish what their own do you music. Have for young composers, arrangers who are looking to publish stuff that they've written. Well, when it comes to publishing, uh, the thing is just submitting. You know, the, the scariest part is to actually just put your music out there because you feel kind of vulnerable about it. When you do, somebody's going to make a judgment on what your music is. And that's a little hard to, to swallow sometimes to be, once again, that vulnerable because they might like it or they might not. But that's also their preference, you know, to like it or not. And my first published piece was a commission by uh, John Nista, who was at Rebelwood Middle, but he was doing the seventh, eighth grade Allstate band for Florida. And we both played in the Broward Symphonic Band at the time. And he said, hey, can you write something for the Allstate band? A little opener piece or something like that. And uh, that's called Journey Through the Grassy River. And we played it and uh, came across somebody at Midwest, the publisher of BRS Music, and just asked them, well, how do we submit? Well, how does that process work? They told me and I submitted and they said, we'll publish it. And it was just like, oh, okay. The piece you're listening to right now is that same piece, Journey Through the Grassy River by Chandler Wilson. The great thing about this story is it's super simple. It's not like Chandler went out to dinner with the daughter of the head of some major publishing company and said, hey, can you put in a good word for me? I've wrote this piece, I think it's worth hearing. No, he wrote a piece, wanted to get it published, asked a company, how do I publish it? And he got it published. It was that simple. Most publishing companies have websites that have very generic things about how to submit works. Some companies prefer that you only submit one work to any company at one time. So it's like, hey, if you were submitting this to us, we hope that you're not submitting this to somebody else. And then of course, sometimes a turnaround time may be a week or two weeks for them to say, hey, we'll be interested or you know, we're not interested. And then um, sometimes it's finding a company that works for you. As weird as it sounds, certain companies have a certain sound. They have certain music that they kind of promote. And you find it's music that you're interested in as a composer or even as a conductor or even as an educator. And if that's music that you like, and if you write music that's kind of like that or may fit their scheme, that's probably where I would start first. Just like with anything else, always best to do your research. When it comes to the music they sell, certain publishing companies promote certain styles and sounds. So, if you're interested in publishing compositions written in a specific style, it might be best to find out which company would best suit you. Of course, whenever you ask a publishing company, would you publish my music, they only can give you two answers, yes or no. That's pretty much all they can do for you. Uh, but just submit, you know, submit and submit. And self-publishing is interesting. It's not difficult at the same time, but it takes a lot of managing when it comes to making sure your parts are very clean and edited and uh, making sure that you can pump out your demand because you realize the amount it costs to print, to bind, to ship and mail and all that. So that's, that's something that has to be... Uh, you know, in mind too, if you want to do self-publishing. As far as actual publishing, just submit it. Find somebody and send it in. Sounds simple enough to me. For those of you out there interested in publishing your own music, remember, ask, submit. Oh, and, and one more thing. I would, sorry, also suggest send a PDF and an MP3. Don't send your file yet. They'll need it if they accept it, but you don't want them to take your property that way. So if you send them a PDF and an MP3, you should be good to go.
we have now reached the fifth and final portion of this episode. And before I give away the topic, I just want to say that this episode was completely unexpected. Not in a bad way, of course. We just weren't planning on using these interviews to make another episode. We're also kind of breaking our mold, so to speak, of giving you guys a singular topic to learn and think about. I think we definitely just crammed like five episodes into one here. But I hope you all have enjoyed listening to it as much as we had making it. Our final topic for this episode, part five, programming for diversity. This portion kind of wraps up our conversation of celebrating not just the music of black composers, but underrepresented composers in general. It's going to feature each of our guests who provide answers based on their past experiences, starting with Dr. Marcus Garrett. I'll say that first, it's about us thinking outside of the box. What are the things that we learned in our four or five, six years in school and now think in what box does that all fit? And then how can we get outside of the box? So what are the things that we, that we didn't touch? How many women did we really talk about and study? How many composers of color, whether they be black or brown, how many composers um, from Asia did we, did we discuss? And it doesn't have to be that when you talk about those other composers that you only talk about the folk music. Mm-hmm. You know, how about also talking about the fact that they have studied, they studied composition just like the white composers have. And they can write in that style whether it has an idiomatic influence to, uh, particular to their culture or not. Um, not to say that the classical music or the non-idiomatic is better or more important, but it's just something that is worthy of attention. Just always thinking about who are we trying to represent? So, I mean, there have been times where I had to, as I was planning a program, I said, oh, I only have men up here. That's a problem. It's not to say that the pieces that I had chosen are not good. They were good. That's why I chose them. But why is it that I only thought of that to begin with? And a lot of it has to go with the history of misogyny and racism associated with pretty much every part of our lives. I mean, human history is is shaped in a lot of that. And thankfully, we have been doing our best to dismantle a lot of those things. However, because I've been reading uh, White Fragility, and Robin DiAngelo has been talking about how, especially white progressives, don't even understand the ways that they are racist, or why some of the things that they do are considered racist, because they're like, well, I'm not doing a racist act. I'm not hosing somebody down. I'm not sicking dogs on someone. I didn't call somebody, you know, a particular uh, racial epithet. But so many things in our culture are designed in such a way to elevate certain groups. And so, and you don't even realize it until somebody points it out. That happens in music. Um, thankfully, more people are thinking about how they can break down those walls. So it's also important just to make sure that you have people around you who essentially will check you on stuff. I mean, I remember there was one recent concert I did, Living Composers, and I was like, yeah, all right. Everybody up here is not white, so I'm good. We did the whole concert, and I was like, oh my God, I don't have a single woman. I didn't have a single woman up there. I was like, oh, not a single trans composer. Like, I mean, there were so many things that I could have included and should have. And, and that was the problem. But like my first concert that I did here with my uh, chamber singers, did a concert that was basically songs in the magical style. And when we think about that, we think again, bunch of white men. You got Thomas Wilkes and John Bennett and William Byrd. I mean, just all these folks that we study about in the history books and they've got these long Grove articles. But there was a black guy Ulysses K, who in the mid 20th century wrote a couple madrigals for this quintet. So we started off the concert with a madrigal by a 20th century black composer. We did all the dead white guys. And then the last one was by a living white woman. And so, I mean, it's about really, uh, you, you have, in this day and age, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional because if you do a festival or an honor choir or an all stage or whatever the case may be, or even a reading session, and you, again, only have one demographic, that's a problem. Yeah. That is a problem. And you should have people in your life who will call you out on it. 
Along with his advice, Dr. Garrett also listed a number of composers he thinks should be recognized and programmed. Are there any other composers or works that you'd like to talk about now that you think should be exposed? So just, I mean, within the last week and a half, I found, I mean, it was new to me, um, and there's very little information written on him, Vincente Lusitano. He was a Portuguese composer uh, and theorist, known more for his theory work than as a composer, but he was of African descent, and he was born um, around 1520, 1521. Then uh, Jose Mauricio Nunez Garcia is another composer that just a lot of people don't know. I mean, he was the first musician of the Kingdom of Portugal. Born and raised in um, Rio de Janeiro, he composed the first opera in Brazil and conducted the premiere, the Brazilian premiere of Mozart's Requiem. Fast forward a little bit more, you got Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, who was it during his time. I mean, he was more famous than, than Elgar. Charles Stanford was his teacher. He was the one who conducted the premiere of his first big choral orchestral work, right. the Hiawatha's Wedding Feast. Everybody needs to listen to that 30-minute work. It is stunning. And it was written for amateur singers. So folks can do it. I mean, you can do it. In addition to Undine Smith-Moore being my, like one of my favorite composers of all time, born and raised in Virginia, born in Jarrett. She lived for quite a quite a few years, most of her time in Petersburg. Um, and I love so many of her pieces because just go down the list. But moving into the living composers, Adolphus Hale Stork is like up here. One of my favorite pieces by him, well actually one of my favorite choral pieces of all time is his Nocturne. I mean it is atmospheric, ethereal. It is a piece that kind of transformed how I listen to music because I always listen to the music that, um, how should I say this, that didn't really push the boundaries at all. It was just like easy listening a lot of times, but this piece is, it, it, it pushes the boundary. And it, it's, yeah, I still remember listening to that song on repeat 15 years ago. Like I will never not talk about that. And he has so many beautiful pieces. And while he does get performed quite a bit, I mean, a number of symphonic works, moratorials, art songs, um, organ works, probably some cello suites, I mean, He's a big time composer. We can still do more. We can still do more. Our next answer comes from Dr. Chandler Wilson, who believes composers should have a purpose as to why they program what they program. As a black person and a black composer, I think that is commendable and good to start searching out, you know, what our standard rep is or our standard composers and performers and stuff are. My only caution is that you don't do it just to do it, but you do it because it's good music. And that's something that for me personally, this is my, my personal opinion is, you know, you still want to put on a great concert. You don't want to seem cliche and say, I'm a program all black people music all year, or I'm a program all female music all year. You just want to have a variety in your program, which we should always have anyway. You know, I think that's just the biggest thing. It's just to make sure that you're doing it and you're doing it within whatever theme you may have for your concert or, you know, because it's good music that you like and you want to expose your students to, you know, different composers. And that's just, I think, you know, making a part of the curriculum to just have diversity in general across the board is just something to keep in mind. But don't do it just to do it. Have a purpose of why you do it. When it comes to our final guest, Nicole Yarling, I admittedly didn't ask her to specifically address how music educators can program for diversity. What I did ask her, however, was why she believed it is important for school music programs to offer jazz as part of the curriculum. Now, this may seem like an off-topic question for this portion of the episode, but her answer actually addresses this issue. First of all, you know, I even asked myself the question, why jazz as opposed to anything else? What jazz does, and it doesn't even happen in classical music. In classical music, it gives you chops. It gives you facility because you have to have a lot of facility to play a lot of the content. But if you look at the content of not 20th century stuff, but the earlier music, a lot of it uh, harmonically is pretty uh, predictable, I hate to say. And if you look at what it is, a lot of it is based on arpeggios and scales. In jazz, it's, it's not that. <laughs> you need technique. You need to understand phrasing. 
you need to understand, I like to call it the mechanics of music. And what that does is if you really analyze music and understand how it's put together, if you wanted to go out and play another style of music, you could use that same set of tools for another style of music. You have to learn how to phrase. Because the thing is, usually I teach at a, a string camp, actually around this time, a lot of great bluegrass fiddle players. They play very, very well. But then when they go from the bluegrass to the jazz, a lot of the phrasing still sounds like bluegrass players playing jazz, right? So my point is, if you understand jazz and you understand that probably more important than getting the notes and the harmonic concept is phrasing. Phrasing is so important. Where a note starts, where a note ends, how you articulate it. Because even if you're playing all this great stuff, if it feels like ta 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 people are gonna stop listening. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if you know da 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 if you understand that and you understand that that's what it takes to make this music sound the way it does, you develop that set of tools. What jazz did for me was gave me a sensibility of when I want to play a different style of music, I have to sit down, take that music apart, and put it back together. I think that that's probably the most important thing about studying jazz. And that's why I think jazz is really important. Because in other styles of music, in classical music, you get a teacher, you get repertoire, and the teacher says, play this the way it's written on the page. Do not stray from this, unless you're like this incredible virtuoso or whatever. But no, play this because this is the way, these are the fingerings, someone arranged it this way, I want you to play this. And you need it to sound like this. You don't have the freedom to improvise. You're told to play it the way it's written on the page. So that's classical music. In jazz, you have that freedom. You know, you play it the way it's written, but then improvise on it. And I think that that will help middle school, high school, college, even in elementary school. If you start to develop the idea of, okay, I really like this music. What does it sound like? How can I play this music on my instrument? Then once you get that and you understand how it works, the sky's the limit. You can play other kinds of music and with using the same set of tools. That's why I think it's important. It took me a while to figure this out, but that's what it is. It really is. And I think jazz does that more so than any other kind of music. Thank you for listening to episode six of Music Talks, Discussions on Music Education. This episode featured special guests, Dr. Marcus Garrett, Dr. Chandler Wilson, and Nicole Yarling. Music feature on this episode included Didala by Nicole Yarling, Saganda Akana by Raimundo Sadare, Don't Be Cruel by Otis Blackwell, Motherless Child, arranged by Nicole Yarling, Conversations by Chandler Wilson, Driftin' by David Ramos, and Journey Through the Grassy River by Chandler Wilson. Oh, um, man, this is fun. Yeah, this is real fun. <laughs> I, I figured it would be going into it, but um, no, it, was, it was really good talking to you. Before I sign off, I wanted to mention that this will actually be my last episode hosting Music Talks. I'll be handing the mic over to the current advocacy chair for Florida Anatomy Collegiate, Adeline Burwell. On our next episode, we'll be discussing women in music, so stay tuned for that. On behalf of Florida Anatomy Collegiate, I'm David Ramos. Thank you for listening to Music Talks, discussions on music education.